You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Let's say you got it into your head that you're going to break into my home. Here's how it would go down. You better be short. I'm five foot three, and in several rooms I can change my own light bulbs without even standing on my toes. First, I'd try to lure you into a foot chase, and you'd likely knock yourself out cold on one of the low-hanging beams. Not to be a cliché, but since we'd probably be in the kitchen, I'd finish you off with a frying pan. I'm assuming you didn't bring a gun, because that would add a nickel or a dime to your sentence. If you did bring a gun, add serpentine to any action that follows. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you really should watch the in-laws, whether you plan to break in or not. Let's forget about the gun. You've done this before. You're a professional. You know the risks. So let's say you duck and make it past the kitchen and into the den. Good luck not tripping over the tea molding at the base of every single doorway. There are three places that can trip you up before we get to the living room. By now I've set off the alarm and the police are on their way. They take longer in these parts than any other places, but they come, eventually. And I have a few other tricks up my sleeve. If you made it inside, you probably enter through the kitchen. If the low beams and the tea molding didn't slow you down, I probably wouldn't have a chance of escaping through the front door. It's rarely used and tricky to get open. So I'd run up the staircase. They're not normal stairs. They're taller than usual and have a lip that you can catch your toe on. I won't trip. I climb up and down these stairs every day. You probably will stumble, and that will give me enough time to run into my bedroom and lock the door. While you're trying to pick the lock, which is easily pickable if you're a self-respecting criminal, I enter my office, adjacent to the bedroom, and climb down the hidden spiral staircase back to the kitchen. I grab my car keys and make a run for it. That's one scenario. Lisa Lutz is the author of The Spellman Files Mysteries, which include The Spellman Files, Curse of the Spellmans, Revenge of the Spellmans, The Spellman Strike Again, and Trail of the Spellmans. With David Hayward, she wrote Heads You Lose. Her new Spellman document, number six, is the last word. Thank you for joining me, Lisa. So great to be here, Rick. Lisa, this is a great outing for Izzy because she's growing up a little bit, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, I think she's grown up in very tiny increments in every book, but I think you sort of, you see where she might end up in this book. As a writer, when you were putting this book together, uh, this book has a little bit, a slightly different tone than the other books. The family interactions seem a little deeper or darker, and and things are, uh, get every all in all, things are a little bit more serious. Did you know where that was you were going to go when you started the book? I think that, you know, I think sometimes a book, the tone of a book can sometimes come from, like, what's going on in your life. And it was a very difficult time, and it was a very difficult um, book to write. But I also think that I, as I was writing the book, I had a sense of some kind of ending, and endings are sad no matter how you look at them. One of the things that we most enjoy about any of these books is Izzy's voice. And this was the first book where it struck me that Izzy is a classic unreliable narrator, but <laughs> but not because she's going trying to hide things from you is because it, she's so good at hiding things from herself. That's a really good point. I mean, I think that I think I think many people are good at, at hiding things from themselves. And, and I know a lot of people like that. And one could argue that any sort of narration that comes from a, a personal perspective is unreliable. 
I mean, it's only the omniscient narrator. And I think even that is an all narrators are unreliable is what I'm saying, I think. Uh, Even God. (laughs) God is a totally unreliable narrator. This book features the family once again. But when we start things, the Spellman agency is in disarray. And you do a great job of bringing us up to speed. Thank you. Yes, I I think with this being the sixth book and and knowing that there were going to be some people who might pick it up without reading all of the others, I did I did try to without too much of a heavy hand like let people know what was going on here. And so Isabel has uh after um taking over the family business in a hostile takeover, she's now the boss and she is dealing with some extremely disgruntled employees who happen to be her parents. You know, one of the things, too, that struck me is in this book and in all these books, these are like really very sophisticated works of metafiction where you're using all sorts of great narrational techniques that are kind of non-traditional, yet you make it seem like a breeze. I mean, reading these are super fun and super easy, but the, the techniques you're using to put this together are very, very sophisticated. I appreciate that. I would argue, though, that they're not coming from a sophisticated mind. They're coming from someone who just writes without any real reverence for what's been written before. I It's sort of like, if I think this idea will work, if using a transcript will work, if using a children's book will work, I'll use it. I just sort of, that's my rule with, with writing. It's sort of like the best way to tell the story, and sometimes that's just not a straight paragraph. <laughs> You know, uh, too, these are, this is a, 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 Izzy is also a classic hard boiled detective, but she's also the opposite of a classic hard boiled <laughs> detective. And I, that, that must be fun for you to play with. I'd like you to talk about, you know, maybe your experience of reading Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and then completely turning that upside down, inside out, and sending it into a completely different dimension. Well, there, I mean, there, a lot of the things about Isabel that make her seem sort of hard-boiled are the fact that she can drink most men under the table and, and this sort of terse way she, the way she speaks. They also tend to be very reserved. And I think in many ways, Isabel is very reserved. And I mean, the reader tends to know a little more about her than maybe, than maybe some of the traditional uh, characters in crime fiction. But so that's one part of it. But you know, she's not solving the kinds of crimes that these hard-boiled detectives are solving. Um, she's solving much more simple cases of what's, you know, the mysteries of just simple be- human behavior, what's going on in her family. Um, and I wanted to reflect what I saw after working at a PI firm, which was that we didn't solve any mysteries. You know, uh, that's one of the things I think that's such an so interesting about this book is that, um, and the other ones too, that these are mysteries that often the first mystery is what is the mystery in this mystery novel? <laughs> ah, yes, that's usually how I'm writing them. Oh no, what am I going to write about now? <laughs> uh, as a writer, when do you just like does this just fall off the tip of your pen? I mean, do you have any idea of where you're going when you start this? With this book in particular, I can say nothing fell off the tip of my pen. Uh, Things were rewritten and rewritten and restructured and changed over and over again. I had a very difficult time writing this book. I mean, I'm happy with how it came out, but I I had to beat it out of me to try to sort of figure out how to combine these stories and make these stories work. Well, there there are a lot of different stories in here, and I think that that's an interesting aspect of these books is that 
more than most books, these books have the feel of everyday life for everyday people, right. even though that she's a, a detective. And I think that's an interesting approach for this kind of fiction. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm much more interested in the the mysteries that I could plausibly solve in my life than the ones that I'm never going to solve. I mean, yeah, look, if, if like a dead body drops at my door, I'm totally on it. And that would be awesome. I mean, I don't want anyone to die just so I can solve a mystery. But I, you know, I'm interested in really like the simple things that make people tick. And I think that there has to be a way, and I've been trying, um, to make that as interesting as a murder or a kidnapping or insert some really horrible crime. Well, I think that that's the, the charm of these books is that they deal with the mysteries of why is your family so completely crazy? <laughs> <laughs> and that's always a mystery to all of us. It's true. Yeah. I mean, and, and then I think the family would, you know, their mystery would be like, why is Isabel behaving like such a lunatic? <laughs> that That's true. And when you're, I'd like you to talk about the, the setup to this book where Izzy has gone through this hostile takeover of her family's own agency, which is an unusual tactic, to say the least. Right. Well, in, in the previous book, she she did some things that, that made her, her parents very angry with her, and they fired her. So the only way she could get her job back was to stage a takeover and buy out her brother and sister's shares of the company. So now she is the boss, and um, she's never been boss before, and she is not good at it. And uh, I would I would argue that she becomes insanely power hungry when she realizes she has the power and then she she loses that power hungriness when she realizes that she actually has no power. <laughs> that, that's an interesting uh way of looking at it. Now, we we get a lot of uh playful kind of things in here. Um you have the voice memos and the the mem the company memos and I'd like you to talk about creating those in a consistent style and using them in terms to to drive the plot forward to drive the characterization forward they each little nugget does a couple of different things at once and like I say I think it it you'll read one of these memos in a second they've got a great joke in it but there's a lot of other stuff going on in all of this yeah, I mean the memos, the memos, the main memos. Uh, there's a there are longer ones that serve as a sort of a structure for the story, and um, the narrator isn't clear with these memos, and they let you know, like all Spellman books, they, I start sort of in the middle, and then I bring you back to the beginning, and and the reason for that is, is that when you don't have a murder to hang a a, a book on, you kind of you need to start at a point of chaos so that the reader then says wait. How did we get here? And then you take them back and show them how you got there. So the memos help structure the whole thing. But then the internal inter-office memos that Isabel is sending out once she gains power sort of illustrate the the preposterousness of, of how she's wielding that, that power. One of the, the problems that we encounter in this book uh, that she's trying to solve is what's what's up with her sister, Ray. And I love how Ray has changed through the series. I think you've done a great job of growing her up, and I, and that's a difficult task. Yeah, Ray was interesting because she always seemed like, you know, I've lately I've been trying to sort of uh, describe the Spellmans for, for people who haven't read them, and, you know, I think in some ways Isabel's the hero of, of these stories and Ray's the villain. 
there is a darkness to Ray that I'm slowly bringing out. And it's not, I mean, it's not totally evil, but there's something about her that feels like she can do anything. And Isabel, even though she does crazy things and steps over the line, she questions herself. She's always able to step back, whereas I don't think Ray can step back if she's succeeding in any way. And failure, I think, would only make Ray try in another way. So as Ray's gotten older, in this book, she comes back into the family fold and has figured out a niche in the business where she feels like she will thrive, except that it's not traditional private investigative work. It's She calls herself a conflict resolution specialist. And that can mean, and will eventually, uh, to readers who have finished this book, they'll understand, that can mean and will mean almost anything. Uh, I like the way that you play with this concept. And I'm wondering, did you encounter a conflict resolution specialist in your own life? No, never. But um, I was interested in Ray's thought process in terms of, I think Ray thinks that she can fix any problem no matter what that problem is. And so I'm curious to see how far I can take this. Well, that sounds like fun. <laughs> uh, one of the things, too, that, that's interesting is the mystery of the, of the mother and the father. Uh, so I'd like you to talk about these two characters because they're really interesting. Again, what's nice about these books is you've given us an arc through all of the books, and, we've, and we really get to like these people. And one of the... the virtues of any Spellbound book is no matter what page we're on, there's somebody on that page we really, really like. <laughs> well, that's good. I appreciate that. Um, well, Albert and Olivia, at the beginning of the book, in in rebellion of their now place as employees of, of Isabel, they have, they have many passive-aggressive things that they're doing. I mean, they the father will wear swimsuit trunks and a cardigan sweater to work. And I mean, Isabel will try to like turn the the heat, the air down so so cold to stop him, but he's just, you know, he's coming to work in his pajamas. The mother's coming to work in, co- in curlers and a bathrobe. Sometimes all they do at work is eat breakfast. So they're, they're very passive-aggressive in that way. But then Isabel starts to notice that there's something else going on with them as well. There's, there's some sort of heated conflict between the two that they're keeping secret. And as usual, behavior is misinterpreted. As we do in life, we always misinterpret behavior. So Isabel, she's not she's not one of those brilliant detectives that always gets it right. She's just a, a detective that never stops until she gets it right. Uh, that's one of the things I think that's interesting, too, about this book. You ma- mentioned misinterpretation. That's a, a theme in this book, and that's a fascinating concept because we're always— uh, there's something in psychology called theory of mind— where you meet somebody and you kind of build a model of what they're like, what they're doing, and you kind of base your behavior uh, around them on your model. And uh, generally speaking, we always think our models are perfect, and in fact, generally they're always really, really wrong. And this book is is a, a monument to that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, that, that just got me thinking, like, am I just wrong about people all the time and sort of uh, exercising that this com- internal conflict in my books? Um, you know, I don't know. I just I think that I I always like flawed over anything else. I'm always going to write about screw ups more than I'll write about. I, I don't think I've ever written a character that you, you could call, you know, great and perfect. But I we've also I feel like we also have just seen to death that sort of brilliant detective. And 
I wanted to show a detective who you really can't describe as brilliant. I mean, if you gave Isabel an IQ test, it would just be average. I mean, and in some weird way, I'm kind of writing about me because it's like in many ways I'm really smart and I, I think that there's I have some talent, but I also know more than anyone how utterly mediocre I am. And I think you can be really mediocre and somehow accomplish something, which I have. People, kids, <laughs> it can happen. <laughs> now, uh, in, in this book, we also uh, get to spend a great deal of time with Edward Slater. And I really, really liked Edward. I think he's a great character, and I think you must too. Yeah, I, I mean, Edward Slater was... He showed up first in Trail of the Spellmans, the fifth book. And and like a lot of characters, this has happened to me where I didn't know that they were going to come back. I didn't know what was going to happen. But this happened with Henry Stone in the first book. He makes a very small appearance, and then he shows up as a huge character later on. But Ed, Edward Slater, you know, he's um, he's Isabel's opposite in every way, but he, he takes a shine to her, I think partly because this is someone he knows is a good person. You know, he's trying to make her life better because as she's trying to make his better. And, and you have a lot of fun with Henry in this book, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I do. I mean, I, it's with Henry Stone, who was previously a romantic interest. Um, I have turned that upside down. I know that many readers had an expectation of happy endings and that sort of thing. And, and I don't do that. I don't write happy endings. You, you go find some other writer for that. I'm glad that's the case. In terms of some of the kind of the real-world crime stuff that happens, one of the big plot points that caught my attention was the problems with a moving company. Oh. <laughs> now, you yourself recently made a move, unhappily for us here in San Francisco across country, and I'm wondering how much of what we read in the book is based on uh, personal experience and, and how much actual real passion you were able to put on the page. There was so much passion. I have never, when I when I moved, uh, I, it was a, a, truly the, the person who, who handled the move was a sociopath, I think, and one of the most evil men I've ever met. And what I will say <laughs> is that if you're looking for a moving company, I have all the hints in the book what moving company not to use. It's not the same name, but it's close-ish. So talk about uh, how, how these moving companies work because it's actually uh, itself, it's a criminal enterprise. It is a criminal enterprise. And actually when they were holding on to my belongings and I had been stuck in my upstate New empty upstate New York house for about a month and losing my mind, I finally called the PI I used to work for and I had him look up the company. And they had so many filings against them. And the man who handled the move was using an alias this was, I mean, such a shock to me. And so, and, and as my boss said, they're in the new mob. At, well, that's a, a mob that uh, can, takes, care, uh, takes advantage of people at their most. Uh... Absolutely. Look, everybody has, has heard stories of, you know, people have, you know, with your, their truck full of your stuff, and then they ask for more money. It's pure extortion. Well, it's such an interesting racket, too, because they have so many ways to protect themselves. And uh, this, uh, as a plot point in a mystery novel, this gives you a, the opportunity for a lot of fun and a lot of mischief on the part of your characters. 
It's true. I mean, in, in the book, I was able to act out the revenge that I personally sought. So I've never ha- exercised my demons in a book quite like this. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and that brings us to uh, another point about these books, is these books are about mischief. I mean, and the, the joy of mischief and the fun of it, because it happens, the crimes tend to be mischief, but also the solutions. <laughs> it's true. There, There is a lot of mischief, and there's, there's no proper rule following in these books. When you uh, dream up the crimes in these books and—, and uh, dream up the the plot lines. You there's a lot of plot in this book. I mean, a lot of stuff happens for a book in which there are no traditional crimes. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. It's. I mean, I'm I'm loosely categorized as a crime novelist, but I think it's be- better to describe me as a as this is misdemeanor fiction. <laughs> <laughs> misdemeanor fiction. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, this is also fiction too about a uh, a very um, you might call them a dysfunctional family, but I'd hesitate to do that. And I think that's uh, an interesting response for me as a reader. No, I actually think that's the correct response because they are, you know, this is a family where everyone loves everyone. And I don't think that their arguments reach any point of, of extreme hostility. It's sort of like they, they still love each other when they're fighting, you know. And I, I, I don't think that that's dysfunctional. I think that's pretty normal. It's just that they're a family full of very extreme characters. Uh, David and his wife Maggie now have uh, a young daughter, and she's also a great character for somebody who basically has a vocabulary of about four words. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Two of them are no Izzy. So I'd like you to talk about creating this character. And also, did you do some of the research on the princess aspects of this? Well, I... I had been around some some kids who had this princess fixation and and you know I I respect whatever you know when children are children they go through whatever phase they go through but when I was little if you tried to put a dress on me I went insane and I mean I would start sobbing I I would lose my mind I was so not a princess and I would imagine that Isabel was a little bit like that too and so suddenly she has this niece who is her exact opposite. And the niece is looking at Isabel in her grungy jeans and boots and is just thinking, ugh, what are you? I mean, there's, you're not a lady. And so the niece, the, this three-year-old, just immediately doesn't like her aunt. And, you know, we always ha- see these great relationships with little kids and adults, but sometimes a little kid just doesn't like you. And um, I, I just felt like exploring that and showing how Izzy would react. Yeah, you do a great job of of painting a picture of a 30-pound tyrant. (laughs) Thank you. She is pretty awful. (laughs) Now, uh, you also have, you know, the the parents, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about what you've done with David because you've been putting him through more and more of changes. It just feels like you have it out for this guy, don't you? Oh, I you know, I think I maybe humanized him. Look, he started out perfect, then he married this woman who was sort of wonderful and imperfect. And then he became, he had a, they had a child, and he became the stay-at-home dad. And, um, but then that morphed from sort of the sloppy stay-at-home dad because he's just dealing with a baby and all, and all the chaos to now he's having to set an example for his three-year-old 
but not in a way you normally set an example for a three-year-old. So the three-year-old in this book has been brainwashed by her grandmother, Grammy Spellman, who is really awful, into being a lady in the extreme sense of the word. And I've always disliked the word lady. Um, so, so Sydney is now super polite, always wants to wear a princess dress, drink tea, eat cookies that aren't even cookies. They're Melba toast because cookies are fattening. And so, you know, David and his wife and Isabel all have to intervene. And the way they do it is they just act like sort of foul-mouthed slobs around her. <laughs> Quite successfully, I might say. <laughs> Thank you. And this brings up the subject of Grammy Spellman. I don't think I've encountered such... Uh, although I like her on the page, she's fun to be around because she's so evil. Uh, there's a there's a story by Stephen King called Grandma, and and, <laughs> and this this rivals that. Wow, I need to read that. Um, yeah, what's funny is I had a great grandma who was nothing like this, but I had um, an English babysitter when I was a little kid, and she was obsessed with manners. Like she had this weird rule, like she would ask you if you wanted candy. And then she'd reach into her purse. But if you looked into her purse while she was getting the candy, she told you that that was very rude and you weren't supposed to do that. And everything was please and thank you. And just it was endless. And she was obsessed with her weight, which Grammy is. You know, it's just like (laughs) so, you know, in one of the previous books, in reaction to Grammy's weight obsession, everyone's sitting around the dinner table just shouting how much weight they've gained. (laughs) Uh, I remember that scene. That was a lot of fun. (laughs) Uh, You know, too, it strikes me that uh, this book and these books are monuments to the American contrarian. (laughs) Thank you. I love that. Uh, Talk about, like, uh, creating these characters who are just kind of go against everything in a kind of a subtle, the passive aggressive is is a is a good word. It, it it lives in this book. I think that in 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 essence, they're in some ways passive aggressive books. Um, <laughs> do, you, do you see what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like because like, they're part of the like the mystery genre, but I'm not doing any of the things you're supposed to do in a mystery. Some people accuse them of being sort of chick litty, and yet I won't let anyone have a happy romance. Really or at least not that kind of happy ending that people like in those books. So yeah, I, I, I you know, and I when I think about what I what I like, it's never feels like the thing you're supposed to like. I don't know. Why do what you're supposed to do? I mean, I follow most of the laws, right? I think so. I well, I'm glad that you don't follow the laws of the mystery genre because <laughs> uh, otherwise well, we'd be living in a rather different world. This is also a book, too, where for all the fun we have, I started to realize that the metafictional pieces, the memos, the transcripts and that kind of stuff, they're a distancing mechanism. And Izzy's distancing herself from herself, and that's because she's looking at herself and not so happy with what she sees. Yeah, I think that that when you get older... I mean, there there's some things that you can just let slide when you're younger, but you, I think that mirror just it becomes more prevalent as you age, and you 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 have to question yourself and and the things that that felt uncomfortable when you were 28 feel really sad and dangerous when you're 34. And I've found this as I've gotten older, where I've I've noticed things that are wrong with me, and you start to wonder, well, is this ever going to change? 
And that's that can be scary when you're starting to reach a point where people don't change as much as they used to. I also think, too, that we see a lot of loneliness in this book, but it's set back at a distance. Um, Izzy's lonely. She's living in a grotto. And, <laughs> and, and Edward is kind of separated from his family. And so... But these themes are are subtly done. Everybody's kind of making fun of themselves and pushing back on this idea of loneliness. But at heart, these people are are pretty unhappy. Yeah, I mean, you know, a book can be a comedy, but for me, comedy has always been, it's about taking a serious issue and making it more palatable. And yes, these books are very much about loneliness. And and there, there are characters in the book that that are facing very difficult things um, in life, including Edward's secretary, who I won't go too much into, but that's another character who is reacting to, you know, how she sees her future and is terrified by that. And I think, too, I love that summation of the future, and I thought that that was, I think, one of the the best uh, shots at, you know, what it's like to be in America now where the middle class, there used to be some semblance. So you used to be able to lie to yourself that things will be better for your kids or my life will be better than my parents. That's absolutely not the case anymore. You're lucky to keep the status quo. Absolutely. And, you know, you know, no one is, is financially thriving in these books other than Edward Slater. And while he's financially thriving, he's physically ailing. And you you do some interesting things with uh, uh, the illnesses that people have in this books these books, and what I thought found of compelling was the fact that you're able to write about some really serious stuff. I mean, heartbreaking stuff in a manner that's by virtue of being very straightforward about it. It's both funny and palatable, as you put it earlier, and I think that's really important. Right. But also, um, it gets to the to the heart of the matter. Yeah, I mean, there. it's taken me a while to figure it out, and I think I worked harder at it with the very first book. But, um, you know, I want to write about serious issues, but you can't, when you're writing a comedic novel, there's this very careful line you can't cross in terms of tone of being too heavy-handed with the drama so you can but the thing is people are used to these things happening people get sick um, people die and so there has to be a way to sort of talk about it in a in a plain manner and but not have it undermine the ultimate comic nature of the books Uh, playing into the comic nature of these books is San Francisco which is a great place to set of uh, funny books. <laughs> and oh, you yes. Have, you have a lot of fun with that. Now, uh, so talk about the, the virtues of San Francisco as a as a setting for comedy. Well, San Francisco, I mean, here here's my favorite thing about San Francisco. It's sort of, I believe it's the most tolerant city in, in America. And so you're going to see everything. But you're going to see it, and if you live here, you're going to react to it very differently than a tourist would. You know, it's sort of like... I used to live in a building that um, had an entrance on the alley, and it was sort of it was near nearish the Tenderloin, and um, we had a homeless man that everyone referred to as our doorman, 
And he was a true, I mean, he was crazy. He had crazy eyes and, and he would, if you got stuck in a conversation with him, which I invariably did, you were, you were there for 20 minutes at least. But he was also our doorman. And once I was desperate and a car didn't come to take me to the airport and he hailed a cab for me. Um, and these are the weird relationships you have in the city. Um, uh, yeah. Now, uh, also, you, you talk about one of the things I think you do that's interesting is given that this is a novel to a degree about place, you write about place with a snide attitude, <laughs> as in when you're describing the marina. Oh, yeah, the marina. I really I don't want to insult all the marina people, but I really don't like the marina. And it, I also feel like, if I can be so bold, and maybe you should edit this out, there is a different type of person who lives at the marina, for the most part, than the rest of the city. And different in what way? Well, they're more conservative. They feel like they, it seems to me like a lot of them seem like they could just as easily live in L.A. Well, that's a scary thought. Maybe I know. Re- <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make people really mad right now. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, as you have gone through this series, you've told all the stories from Izzy's point of view. Mm-hmm. And as I sit here talking to you, I, I, I mean, I feel like, you could just, if they make the movie, you need to be Izzy. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. <laughs> so I'm wondering how, you know, how much Izzy lives in you, how much you live in Izzy, and, and that kind of, you know, the the boundary crossing that you have to set up as a writer and as a human being. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly sometimes my own opinions are, are absolutely going to get in the books. Um, you know, when I when I talk about the marina, look, the marina is my gripe. I don't, but I think it would be Izzy's gripe too. You know, with the Innocence Project in the fourth book, I mean, in some ways, this was sort of my way of of getting that noticed and writing a story that are, that surrounded, you know, wrongful convictions. So sometimes with a general idea, I think that there can be an overlap. But I think that what's happened is I've developed this voice when I'm writing Isabel that's not quite the same when I write other things. As you, when you write Isabel, do you write by hand or on a typewriter? Or a oh, a computer. Oh, if you saw my handwriting. I mean, and, and after one line, it's just aching. I don't think I was ever taught to properly hold a pen. So it's extremely difficult for me. And I remember, you know, when you do your copy edits, uh, sometimes it's still on paper. And so you have to write in, change things and everything. And my production editor once sent me a note that my handwriting was like a dermatologist after a four-day bender in Bangkok, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was pretty awesome. That's pretty good. Well, you, <laughs> uh, and, and so you you have the, the Isabel voice and the Lisa voice. Um. You read us your an excerpt from you know which is a description of what what happens if we enter your house. <laughs> That's the nice part. It gets much worse. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> uh, can you read us some of the some of the worst part? Sure. Um, let's see. Okay, so let's say the whole thing happens the same way. You come upstairs into my bedroom. I'm sleeping, and I do the same thing. Um, so I, uh, okay, so I go into the office, and then I start to climb down the staircase, but I realize you have an accomplice. I'm trapped, but I'm trapped in the room. I keep my weapons. 
I pull my cordless drill from the tool closet, snap on the battery pack. I pick a quarter-inch drill bit, too thick for the household projects, but it'll do the job. I keep that by my side, should we engage in any close combat. I should remember to charge the battery. I decide the best weapon for this situation is my recurve bow. I do target practice in my backyard. I'm pretty good. At least that's what George at Flying Arrow Sports said. He gave me my first lesson. I pick up my bow and quiver, string the arrow, and lay in wait at the top of the staircase. Your accomplice decides to take his chances and explore the cabinet-like door that tucked away in the back of the kitchen. He opens the door and sees the stairway, although it resembles no stairway I've ever seen before. It's suitable for extremely agile four-year-olds, and that's about it. A grown man trying to climb the stairs would have to hunch over, use only the balls of his feet, and grip the railing for dear life. Your accomplice, who is not a genius, remains undaunted. He takes two steps. We make eye contact. Everything is in slow motion. I pull my bow and aim for his heart. Thing is, I shoot low. During target practice, I remember that and overcompensate by aiming high. But I forget to do that with this first arrow. Point is, I don't hit your accomplice in the heart. Sorry, I wasn't aiming for that, I swear. Accomplice screams in pain. Good case scenario. You hear accomplices cries for help, make a run for it, like the coward you are. Bad case scenario. You decide to be a hero and help your friend. You follow his screams to the base of the toddler staircase, see me fumbling to load my second arrow, and you charge the mini staircase, somehow managing to make it almost to the top. I drop the bow, get to my feet, land a kick in your solar plexus so hard you make a noise that sounds an awful like those phlegmy deer I was telling you about. You snap backwards, first knocking your head on one of those low-hanging beams and then on the wood floor at the bottom of the staircase. You're out cold. Based on the blows you took to the back of the head, I diagnose you with a subdural hematoma. A bad case of it. I get 911 on the phone to check for their ETA. It's going to be a while. From the medical shows I've watched, the best way to treat this condition is by performing a burr hole trephination. Basically, I need to drill a small hole in the side of your head. Don't worry, I know what I'm doing. I'm not a doctor, but I really like to Google medical conditions. I take my drill and swap out bits. I think this one calls for a 116th. I hope the batteries are charged. <laughs> I guess we have just deterred any, <laughs> any would-be break-ins into your house. One would hope so. Uh, that's a great voice. Now, uh, I'm wondering, are you going to—you did a, a collaboration with David Hayward. Right. Which I really loved. Thank you. And it was really a fun book. I still get hate mail about that book, and I'd like—can I just say on air— don't send me hate mail. I love that book. You are not going to convince me otherwise. Well, so I'm hoping we might see a sequel to that, using that kind of uh, conversational uh, writing style. I would love to. I mean, I, I've, you know, there might be a way to figure it out. I mean, Dave and I briefly discussed trying to do a pure epistolary novel about us just brainstorming ideas about what our next book would be, um, which people might prefer since they did seem to like the letters the best. And I love the letter format, so I'm always thinking about how to play with that a bit. But my next book is uh, You Were Here, which is a complete, uh, you know, it's a, I'm taking a totally different road than I have with any of the Spellman books. And it's, um, it's not a comedic novel, and it's not a crime novel. Oh, well, tell us a little bit about it and what inspired it. I think, I, well, I started the very first chapter uh, right after I finished the first Spellman book before we got the deal when I wasn't sure what was going to happen. So it's it's seven-ish, eight years still in the making, and I've worked on it in piecemeal. But it's about three friends over about 20 years, and every chapter is a year in time, and a, like a moment in a year. Uh, and the chapters are jumbled. So when we first meet them, they're 18. 
The next time we meet a character, she's 36, and nothing makes sense for how she got from A to B. And then you sort of fill in the blanks of their life, and it's sort of about, it's about female friendship. It's about the strange turns our lives take. And when you have, sometimes you have those moments like, as you get older, where you're thinking, how did I get here? And this book is sort of about, like, putting those moments in sharp relief. As the talking head said, this is not my beautiful house. <laughs> That's kind of perfect. Yes, exactly. Now, uh, it sounds also, too, like you're structuring this in many ways like a mystery, only just... Yes, exactly. Wow, you understand me, Rick. Um, no, the way I, I have described it to people, it's sort of it's taking a life and making it unfold like a mystery. That sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, when will we see it? Hopefully um, sometime next year. I just turned in sort of the first draft to my editor, and, and it's a complicated book and uh, and also a little bit complex in terms of making it available to the reader, so we're trying to sort of simplify it a little bit. I think this uh, it sounds like this is a book that is suggested by all the sophisticated stuff you do with your comedies in, in a way. Thank you. No, I, I mean, I... You know, and it's still, I mean, you can learn so much from comedy, and I never think comedy should be out of anything. Even this book has comedic moments. So I've hope, I hope I've learned something. You know, the one thing I've always hoped was that somebody would take this, the Spellman files and turn them into some kind of TV series or miniseries. Is, that, is there any hope of that? There is, actually. In fact, this time around, um, I am going to be the one pitching it, and I'll be doing that in a month or two. Well, uh, congratulations. I look forward to, <laughs> to seeing them on the screen as we well as reading happens. them. hope it happens, yeah. I've been speaking with Lisa Lutz. Her new novel is The Last Word. It's Spellman Document Number 6. Thank you for joining me, Lisa. Thank you, Rick. This has been great. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.